Good evening. Tonight we'll be continuing our sermon series in the book of Galatians, and we are in Galatians chapter 2. Would you please stand out of reverence for the Word of God? Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be focusing on verses 17 through 21, but for context, I'm going to begin in verse 15. Please give careful attention to this reading of God's Word. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it as such. You may be seated. These last several weeks in our morning sermon series on Matthew, we've been focusing a lot on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how this is a sobering reality that we need to be ready, but how it's also a source of hope for us, that we're looking for a Savior who will come to deliver us from this world of sin and misery. On this day, people around all the world are focusing on Christ's first coming. All of human history, in fact, since the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, is framed around these two great events. The first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as deliverer, and the second coming of Jesus Christ as judge of the world. These indeed are things which are worthy of our utmost attention and contemplation. We must continually look back to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and looking to that in faith. And we must also look to the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in hope. But what about the time in between? What is our Savior, Jesus Christ, doing now? How do we think about his current ministry What I'm getting at is this. I think we often are good about thinking about what Christ has done for us and what he'll do for us, but we don't always think about what Christ does in us. But both of these things need to be taken together. The same Christ who lived, died, rose again, and poured out his spirit is the same Christ who lives and is active in you, transforming human hearts and conforming us to his image. And speaking theologically, we call this doctrine union with Christ. And that's what Paul wants us to reflect on today. The Christ who lived for you is the Christ who lives in you. And that this reality changes everything about how we think and act. When you believe in Christ and you are united to him by faith, there's been a change in your identity. 
You are no longer the old I, but you are now I in Christ. And that changes everything. This is a really important point to make. Often we think about salvation all wrongly. We tend to think about it as if Jesus just got us back to square one. That he picked us up by our bootstraps for sure, but now we need to get to work. Or Jesus got us back to the garden, but now it's up to us to stay in it. But all of this is wrong-headed. Jesus doesn't just merely take us back to the garden. He himself brings us to glory. What we'll see in this text of Galatians today is the Christ who lived and died for you and is coming again for you is also the Christ who lives in you. In him, we have died to our old sinful man, and now we must put on the new man, Jesus Christ, our righteousness. What that means for us is that everything we are, everything we have, and everything we can do needs to be understood in relation to our union with Christ who is our head. To come to this conclusion, we'll consider this passage under two simple headings. First, union with Christ in his death. And second, union with Christ in his life. Let's begin with that first point. Union with Christ in his death. Recall that verses 17 through 21 fall within a larger literary unit in Galatians 2, and that's verses 11 through 21. In this section, Paul is explaining why he confronted Peter for his hypocritical behavior. You remember Peter separated himself from fellowship with the Gentiles when certain men came from James, out of fear of the Jews, Paul tells us. Peter, in this behavior, indicated that the Gentiles were still sinners, That Jesus Christ was not sufficient for them. That they were still, in a serious sense, unclean. That's what Peter, separating himself from them, communicated to everyone who saw it. Paul now is arguing, though, ironically, that Peter's hypocritical behavior, in fact, showed himself to be the sinner and the transgressor. But Paul begins in verse 17 by anticipating an objection, which is going to be to his argument that he's made thus far, that one is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as he has proclaimed and given the gospel. He states, But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Recall that in verse 15, and this is why I read in the broader context, Paul used that standard language of the Jews used to refer to every other people. Amartali, sinners. That's how they're described, because by definition, the definition of the Torah, Gentiles were sinners because they were born without hope and without God in the world. They didn't have the promises which God gave to his people, Israel. Israel for sure fell in Adam and were born sinners by nature. But there was this difference. They had hope. They had God in the world because they had God's very precious promises which he gave to his people. So in that sense, they were not like the Gentiles. As Paul says, we ourselves, referring to him and Peter, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. At that point, though, Paul began, began to argue forcefully that he... Peter and all other Jewish believers have come to know in believing in Christ 
that righteousness does not come from the law. They have come to see that the end of themselves in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law to them. That's why Paul includes Peter in this. He says, we know this, and you know this. And in fact, that's why you were fellowshipping with the Gentiles prior to the guys from James coming. You know this, and you were living out that reality. But when these Jewish friends of yours came, you acted hypocritically. You acted in a way not in step with the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter had shown it to be his belief, but then he acted in a way contrary. That is where this potential objection comes in. If believing in Christ leads one to be perceived as a sinner according to law, then is Christ a servant of sin? Uh, To this charge, Paul responds most forcefully, by no means, certainly not, or if you grew up on the KJV, God forbid. Paul is very forcefully saying Christ is not a servant for sin. It's true that according to the ceremonial aspect of law, Peter and Paul's living like a Gentile and fellowshipping with them would have made them unclean. But the law taken in itself is no longer the evaluative standard by which God's people are judged. For Jesus Christ and his gospel are the new evaluative standard for the new covenant people of God because Jesus Christ is himself the one who perfectly kept the law. He is the end of the law. And that is the new standard by which God's people live. Did you notice that Paul switches from the plural we, which he's been using throughout verses 11 through 17, referring to himself and Peter, and now he takes up the singular I. What he's doing here is offering himself as a representative Jewish Christian who in coming to believe in Christ and what that has meant for his old habits and behaviors. He says in verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Here Paul is essentially describing exactly what Peter has just done. It seems confusing when you just read those words like that. If I rebuild, what's he talking about building and tearing down? But think about the context. Peter, in believing that righteousness comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, and in recognizing that this is the new evaluative standard for all behavior, Peter had been eating and fellowshipping with Gentiles, as was proper, as was revealed in Christ, as was revealed to him with the Cornelius situation, where God said, do not call unclean what I have made clean. Peter remembered that, and he was living in accordance with it. Until his friends came from James. In his eating with the Gentiles, Peter had torn down that wall, that standard, the Torah and the law, which said that it was unclean for him to fellowship in this way. But when the guys came from James, and he withdraws, Peter is, in essence, building up again what he has torn down, what God has torn down in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's setting up that barrier of separation between Jews and Gentiles. Again, that's what Paul means. The law as our evaluative standard has been torn down. And if I put it back up again, I'm denying the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship which he has made between Jews and Gentiles. In effect, by putting yourself back under the law, you are showing yourself to be a sinner, a transgressor, because you are not, in fact, living it out. In other words, 
It's not the Lord Jesus Christ which makes one categorized as a sinner, but it is when you deny the truth of the gospel and seek to place yourself under the law again. But for those who have truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, this just can't be the case. And Paul tells us why that's the case. Look at verse 19. He says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. It's worth pausing for a moment. That's a staggering statement, particularly in the context of the first century. Throughout all of redemptive history, how did you live for God? You lived according to the law. But notice what Paul says. He says, through the law, I died to the law in order that I might live to God. Uh, There's a beautiful double irony here. On the one hand, Paul says that it is through the law that he has died to the law. And on the other hand, he affirms that in order to live to God, it was first necessary for him to die. A death had to take place. What does Paul mean here? Well, it's helpful to take this verse with the parallel statement he gives in verse 20, saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Notice the same irony is here. Death was necessary for life. This parallel helps us understand what Paul means by saying, through the law, he died to the law. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore our sins, the sins of his people, and he took the whole weight of the punishment which those sins deserved according to God's holy, righteous standard, the law. As Paul will state in chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and he's quoting the Torah, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And notice the language which Paul uses, showing his intimate connection with this event. He doesn't just say that Christ was crucified for his people, although that's true. Nor does he merely say that Christ has been crucified for him, though clearly he believes that. What does he say? I have been crucified with Christ. Because of the work of God's Holy Spirit working faith in our hearts, Paul can actually speak in terms that he has been crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ. This verb translated as crucified with, it's the exact same word that's used in Matthew and Mark when it's talking about the two criminals who were crucified with Christ, one on the left and one on the right hand. Yet, what Paul's saying even transcends that merely physical proximity which these criminals had. For Paul's co-crucifixion took place actually in the person of Christ. As Peter himself will state it later in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Notice he's echoing Isaiah 53. But I also think St. Peter remembered Paul's teaching from this situation in Antioch. Finally, note Paul's intimate and personal language at the end of verse 20. He says that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. In John 15, 13, as Jesus is having his farewell discourse and he's talking to his disciples, 
He said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Here Paul names Jesus Christ as his closest friend who laid down his life for Paul. A death has occurred which changes everything for Paul, everything for Peter, and everything for everyone who looks to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Remember that Paul is recounting his narrative and speech in order to address the situation which is in Galatia. The false teachers were seeking to force the Gentile Christians to place themselves under the law and be circumcised. In response to this, Paul is clearly telling them that placing themselves under the law will do one thing. It will show you to be transgressors and the sinners that you are. A death has occurred which changes everything, and the only way to be justified and have that right standing before God is by identifying with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the end of the law. The Galatians need to believe that Christ died for them and they with him, and that he has fulfilled all the law's demands. We need to believe this too. The gospel is in fact concerned with personal pronouns. And the only ones that matter or count for anything are those which identify us with the Lord Jesus Christ and his person, his work, his death, and his resurrection. So I ask you, friends, do you believe and trust in Christ? Can you affirm that Jesus Christ died not just in an abstract manner, not merely as a fact of history, as people all over the world, and some not even thinking of a fact of history, are celebrating today. But can you specifically say that Jesus Christ loved me and died for me? If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, albeit imperfectly, as all of us do, this is true of you. By the work of the Holy Spirit and by faith, you are united to Jesus Christ. You have been crucified with Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. You need to believe this. It's glorious news. A death has occurred which changes everything. The only standard or demarcation of worth whether, is whether or not you are united to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only this, because if you are united to Christ in his death, then you are most certainly united to Christ in his life. Christ not only is and was for you, but Christ is also present and active in you. In fact, it is through his death, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of his spirit for you that he is now able to dwell in you. Even as he said to his disciples in that same farewell discourse, it is better that I go away because I'm going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, through whom me and the Father will dwell and live in you. It's a better situation. Which brings us to our next point. We've just looked at our union with Christ in his death Now let's consider our union with Christ and his life. Thus far, we've just talked about one half of the equation, that through the work of the Holy Spirit and through faith, we are united to Christ in such a way that we are personally and individually have been crucified with Christ. That our old man, our sinful nature, has died. 
Now we must consider the other half, which we have touched on already. As through faith we are united to Christ in his crucifixion and death, so too we are united to Christ in his resurrection and his life. Those who are united to Christ by faith are united to him both in his life and his death. Paul explains this change in his personal identity. Look at verse 20 with me. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Earlier in verse 19, Paul expressed that through the law, he died to the law in order that he might live to God. There we know that the way in which Paul died to the law was through his union with Christ and through faith. Now in verse 20, he explains what it means to live to God. This life comes with a death to our own personal ego and an embrace of our new self, which is formed and conformed and constituted in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, 1 through 4, Paul explains this dynamic beautifully. Would you turn there with me if you have your Bible? Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 specifically. Paul states, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's the same word he used in our text. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Perhaps you've never thought about your baptism in this way. But baptism is a sign and seal of our union with Christ. In modern evangelical circles, sometimes we tend to think about principally baptism being about my commitment to the Lord, to live for Him. And certainly that's an aspect of the sacraments. But fundamentally, a sacrament is God placing His name on you and His promises upon you and saying that this is true for you. In the sacrament of baptism, he placed his name upon you, and he promises that all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have been united with him in his death and resurrection. The water of baptism symbolizes death and judgment for sin, but it also represents cleansing and the newness of life, which Christ gives us through his Holy Spirit. Because our old self of sin and misery has been crucified with Christ, It is our new life which we have in Christ. So bound up is our new identity with Christ that Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Notice that this is not a negation of individual life and personality. The I of the old self has been crucified for sure, and it needs to continually be put to death. But Paul also states that the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God. Individual personal identity is not negated, but recalibrated. 
No longer are we to identify with the old man of sin and misery, but with the new man, Jesus Christ, who has become our life and our righteousness. We are now an I in Christ. Paul talks about the life he now lives in the flesh. This term, the flesh, can have several meanings, and it's very important in Galatians. And early on in these early chapters, Paul uses it in kind of a neutral sense. Um, earlier in 19, he said that, when quoting Psalm 143, he says, no one will be saved by works of law, nobody will be righteous. But the word actually used there is no flesh. And I think he's using it the same way here, in a neutral sense of the flesh, for sure, after the fall and all of its weaknesses. But later in Galatians, he's going to use the term flesh as he has developed it to this point, of that which is contrary to the spirit. But he's working the argument up to that point. I think here he's talking about the flesh in neutral terms, talking about the weakness of the flesh on this side of the fall. Therefore, he's talking about his absolute dependence on Christ. The life he lives in the flesh, he lives by absolute faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are at least two ways we can talk about living a life in the flesh, which is by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us. First is a heavenly life which is ours by faith. In Colossians 3, 2 through 4, Paul says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Are you noticing a pattern in Paul? Death in Christ, but life in Christ. You have died, but now you are alive. This is a continual theme in Paul's writings. This is our ultimate hope through which we live by faith in Christ, that he who is our life will appear and will appear with him in glory. But there's a second sense through which we live by faith in the Son of God, and that is now, by the Holy Spirit, even in this life, despite the weakness of our flesh, we live through faith in him and in service to him. By the strength of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we seek to live to his glory even in this life. This is living to God. Because believers have, through the law, died to the law, through their union with Christ and being crucified with him through faith, they now have their life through faith in the Son of God, which is both hidden within him in heaven, and manifested within them on earth as they live out their faith, as we live out our faith and obedience to him. And that faith and obedience comes from that life which is ours in Christ and in us, him working. In verse 21, Paul summarizes the conclusion of his argument. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died For no purpose. It's helpful to remember that grace, that language at base, just means gift. Paul is saying that he does not nullify or reject as invalid God's gift. In other words, if you seek to take up the law as the basis for your righteousness, you're rejecting God's free gift of righteousness in Christ, and you're saying that no, that's not valid. 
That's not true. I need to work up my own righteousness. Thus, Paul says in very serious terms, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is a serious statement that Christ's death would be in vain or pointless. But it's a sound argument for righteousness does not come through the law. This is why Christ had to die. Because you and me, we could never fulfill the law's demands. We could never have life through the law. By works of the flesh, no flesh will be justified. With this, we come to the heart of the Galatian problem and the purpose of this letter as a whole. Indeed, we come to the center of the gospel. All those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, whether Jew or Gentile, confess their absolute dependence on him. In the situation with the false teachers at Galatia, the Galatian believers are focused on their old life in the flesh. This has been encouraged by the false teachers who are setting their focus on the flesh and the old man and who are insisting on fleshly remedies to the situation through circumcision and law obedience. In response to this, Paul emphasizes how their old man has been crucified. You can't bring that back up again. You have died in Christ. And that the works of the law now mean nothing but only faith in Christ counts for anything. This same gospel, challenge, and message comes to us. Round and about us, we hear many opinions on what constitutes being a good person, being righteous before God and man. Here we read that one thing and one thing is necessary, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Through him we die to the law and put to death the old man of sin and misery, and through him we now live unto God through faith in him who loved us and gave himself for us. The Galatians were facing social pressures on what served as social capital in their day. The Greco-Roman society they lived in had many opinions on what made a person worthy. Their whole culture was based on honor and shame and those dynamics. The false teachers at Galatia argued that worth was determined by obedience to the law of God. But whether or not the criteria was Greco-Roman or Jewish, they're talking about merely social capital. In reflecting on this analogy of worth, this is where the difference of faith comes in. Concerning faith, a scholar John Barclay puts it in a way that's better than I can put it, so I'm just quoting him. He says, Faith is not an alternative human achievement nor a refined human spirituality, but a declaration of bankruptcy, a radical and shattering recognition that the only capital in God's economy is the gift of Christ crucified and risen. Faith directed to and centered on Christ recognizes under the impact of the good news that there is no element of value locatable in the human being. It invests everything in the only capital that counts, Christ. In other words, faith is not an alternative system of achievement or worth. It's not our good work that gets us saved. Faith is also not a heightened state of spirituality which makes us worthy of God's grace. Instead, faith is an acknowledgement of our absolute poverty and bankruptcy. That in ourselves we are destitute and lost. 
but that we look to Christ and that we cling to Christ in faith. Ultimately, we recognize that this faith is not our own, but as Paul will go on to say in Ephesians, it's a gift of God. That Christ, working through his Spirit, has worked faith into our hearts, uniting us both in his death and in his life. It's for this reason that the life that we now live in the flesh, which in itself is bankrupt, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We began today by considering where we are in history and by reflecting on what this means about what we should believe and how we should live. In one week, we're entering into a new year. It's at this time that people begin to reflect on their past year and begin to set hopes for the year to come. In itself, there's nothing wrong with this. It's good to want to change for the better, as long as it's rightly inspired and rightly oriented. I wager to say that all of us here have something about ourselves which we just wish that we could change. More than this, many of us have loved ones, I'm sure, that we wish we could change or just snap the fingers and it was changed. This can be as simple as a lifestyle habit or a health resolution, but it can also be as serious as spiritual regeneration and new life. Care and love for ourselves and others and care and zeal for the glory of the Lord are perfectly good reasons to hope and strive for change in ourselves and others. In terms of our spiritual lives, though, I fear that we face these spiritual challenges in a fleshly way. And that's where the doctrine of union with Christ is so important. You see, we see a besetting sin in our own life, and we want it to put it to death in our own strength. We see our friends and loved ones not trusting in the Lord and not walking with Him, but we try to fix them through our own efforts and machinations. But rather, with Paul, we need to say that our old self has died. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but the risen Lord Jesus Christ who lives within me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in Him. Him who loved me and gave Himself for me. Jesus is every bit as active in our sanctification as He is in our justification. And we need to live in a way that reflects that. In the same vein, even as Jesus called us from darkness into light, we must trust that he is still strong to save. So living our faith in him, we must trust and pray that he will change our loved ones because he's strong to save. For all of us here today, hearing this word of the gospel of God's free and full grace, let us believe this message. Let us not reject God's gift as invalid, trying to set up our own forms of righteousness and social capital. Rather, let us confess with Paul that we are united to Christ by faith, and that therefore we have been crucified with him, and it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. The life we now live, we live by faith, and only by faith in the Son of God, who loved each and every one of his people individually and gave himself for them. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess what wondrous love is this that made the Lord of bliss to come and become a curse for us. 
So thankful we are for your Holy Spirit who unites us to the risen Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died and will come again for us and who lives in us. Help us not to strive to set up our own um, acts of righteousness, but to live in Christ, knowing that he lives in us. Help us even as we go out this evening. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.